Section 12 of Self-Help This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wilma Magastino Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles Chapter 5 Helps and Opportunities Scientific Pursuits Part 2 With perseverance, the very odds and ends of time may be worked up into results of the greatest value. An hour, and every day, withdrawn from frivolous pursuits would, if profitably employed, enable a person of ordinary capacity to go far towards mastering a science. It would make an ignorant man a well-informed one in less than ten years. Time should not be allowed to pass without yielding fruits, in the form of something learnt worthy of being known, some good principle cultivated, or some good habit strengthened. Dr. Mason Good translated Lucretius while riding in his carriage in the streets of London, going the round of his patients. Dr. Darwin composed nearly all his works in the same way while driving about in his sulky from house to house in the country, writing down his thoughts on little scraps of paper which he carried about with him for the purpose. Hale wrote his contemplations while traveling on circuit. Dr. Burney learned French and Italian while traveling on horseback from one musical pupil to another in the course of his profession. Kirk White learned Greek while walking to and from a lawyer's office, and we personally know a man of eminent position who learned Latin and French while going messages as an Iran boy in the streets of Manchester. De Gessel, one of the great chancellors of France, by carefully working up his odd bits of time, wrote a bulky and able volume in the successive intervals of waiting for dinner, and Madame de Jolet composed several of her charming volumes while waiting for the princess to whom she gave her daily lessons. Elieu Burrett attributed his first success in self-improvement not to genius, which he disclaimed, but simply to the careful employment of those invaluable fragments of time, called odd moments. While working and earning his living as a blacksmith, he mastered some 18 ancient and modern languages and 22 European dialects. What a solemn and striking admonition to youth is that inscribed on the dial at All Souls, Oxford. Periante Tempotantur Dears perish and are laid to our charge. Time is the only little fragment of eternity that belongs to man, and, like life, it can never be recalled. In the dissipation of worldly treasure, says Jackson of Exeter, the frugality of the future may balance the extravagance of the past. But who can say, I will take from minutes to morrow? To compensate for those I have lost today. 
Melanchthon noted down the time lost by him that he might thereby reanimate his industry, and not lost an hour. An Italian scholar put over his door an inscription, intimating that whosoever remained there should join in his labors. We are afraid, said some visitors to Baxter, that we might break in upon your time. To be sure, you do, replied the disturbed and blunt divine. Time was the state out of which these great workers, and all other workers, formed that rich treasury of thoughts and deeds which they have left to their successors. The mere drudgery undergone by some men in carrying on their undertakings has been something extraordinary, but the drudgery they regarded as the price of success. Addison amassed as much as three folios of manuscript materials before he began his spectator. Newton wrote his chronology fifteen times over before he was satisfied with it, and Gibbon wrote out his memoir nine times. Hale studied for many years at the rate of sixteen hours a day, and when wearied with the study of the law, he would recreate himself with philosophy and the study of the mathematics. He wrote thirteen hours a day, while preparing his history of England. Montesquieu, speaking of one part of his writings, said to a friend, You will read it in a few hours, but I assure you, it has cost me so much labor that it has whitened my hair. The practice of writing down thoughts and facts for the purpose of holding them fast and preventing their escape into the dim region of forgetfulness has been much resorted to by thoughtful and studious men. Lord Bacon left behind him many manuscripts entitled Sudden Thoughts Set Down for Use. Erskine made great extracts from Burke, and Eldon copied coke upon Littleton twice over with his own hand, so that the book became, as it were, part of his own mind. The late Dr. Pye Smith, when apprenticed to his father as a bookbinder, was accustomed to make copious memoranda of all the books he read, with extracts and criticisms. This indomitable industry in collecting materials distinguished him through life, his biographer describing him as always at work, always in advance, always accumulating. These notebooks afterwards prove, like Richter's quarries, the great storehouse from which he drew his illustrations. The same practice characterized the eminent John Hunter, who adopted it for the purpose of supplying the defects of memory, and he was accustomed thus to illustrate the advantages which one derives from putting one's thoughts in writing. It resembles, he said, a tradesman taking stock, without which he never knows either what he possesses or in what he is deficient. John Hunter, whose observation was so keen that Abernity was accustomed to speak of him as the Argus-eyed, Furnish an illustrious example of the power of patient industry. He received little or no education till he was about twenty years of age, and it was with difficulty that he acquired the arts of reading and writing. 
He worked for some years as a common carpenter at Glasgow, after which he joined his brother William, who had settled in London as a lecturer and anatomical demonstrator. John entered his dissecting room as an assistant, but soon shot ahead of his brother, partly by virtue of his great natural ability, but mainly by reason of his patient application and indefatigable industry. He was one of the first in this country to devote himself assiduously to the study of comparative anatomy, and the objects he dissected and collected took the eminent Professor Owen no less than ten years to arrange. The collection contains some 20,000 specimens and is the most precious treasure of the kind that has ever been accumulated by the industry of one man. Hunter used to spend every morning from sunrise until 8 o'clock in his museum, and throughout the day he carried on his extensive private practice, performed his laborious duties as surgeon to St. George's Hospital, and Deputy Surgeon General to the Army, delivered lectures to students, and superintended a school of anatomy at his own house, finding leisure amidst all for elaborate experiments on the animal economy and the composition of various works of great scientific importance. To find time for his gigantic amount of work, he allowed himself only four hours of sleep at night and an hour after dinner. When once asked what method he had adopted to ensure success in his undertakings, he replied, My rule is deliberately to consider, before I commence, whether the thing be practicable. If it be not practicable, I do not attempt it. If it be practicable, I can accomplish it if I give sufficient pains to it. And having begun, I never stop till the thing is done. To this rule I owe all my success. Hunter occupied a great deal of his time in collecting definite facts, respecting matters which, before his day, were regarded as exceedingly trivial. Thus, it was supposed by many of his contemporaries that he was only wasting his time and thought in studying so carefully as he did the growth of a deer's horn. But Hunter was impressed with the conviction that no accurate knowledge of scientific facts is without its value. By the study referred to, he learned how arteries accommodate themselves to circumstances, and enlarge as occasion requires. And the knowledge thus acquired emboldened him, in a case of aneurysm in a branch artery, to tie the main trunk where no surgeon before him had dared to tie it and the life of his patient was saved. Like many original men, he worked for a long time as it were underground, digging and laying foundations. He was a solitary and self-reliant genius, holding on his course without the solace of sympathy or approbation. For but few of his contemporaries perceived the ultimate object of his pursuits. But like all true workers, he did not fail in securing his best reward, that which depends less upon others than upon oneself, the approval of conscience, which in a right-minded man invariably follows the honest and energetic performance of duty. Ambrose Parry, 
The great French surgeon was another illustrious instance of close observation, patient application, and indefatigable perseverance. He was the son of a barber at Laval in Maine, where he was born in 1509. His parents were too poor to send him to school, but they placed him as footboy with the curie of the village, hoping that under that learned man, he might pick up an education for himself. But the curie kept him so busily employed in grooming his mule and in other menial offices, that the boy found no time for learning. While in his service, it happened that the celebrated Lutotomist, Cotto, came to Laval to operate on one of the curie's ecclesiastical brethren. Parry was present at the operation and was so much interested by it that he is said to have from that time formed the determination of devoting himself to the art of surgery. Leaving the curie's household service, Parry apprenticed himself to a barber surgeon named Violet, under whom he learned to let blood, draw teeth, and perform the minor operations. After four years' experience of this kind, he went to Paris to study at the School of Anatomy and Surgery, meanwhile maintaining himself by his trade of a barber. He afterwards succeeded in obtaining an appointment as assistant at the Hotel View, where his conduct was so exemplary and his progress so marked that the chief surgeon, Gopil entrusted him with the charge of the patients, whom he could not himself attend to. After the usual course of instruction, Paro was admitted a master barber surgeon, and shortly after was appointed to a charge with the French army under Montmorency in Piedmont. Paro was not a man to follow in the ordinary routes of his profession, but brought the resources of an ardent and original mind to bear upon his daily work, diligently thinking out for himself the rationale of diseases and their befitting remedies. Before his time, the wounded suffered much more at the hands of the surgeons than they did at those of their enemies. To stop bleeding from gunshot wounds, the barbarous expedient was resorted to of dressing them with boiling oil. Hemorrhage was also stopped by searing the wounds with a red-hot iron, and, when amputation was necessary, it was performed with a red-hot knife. At first, Parry treated wounds according to the approved methods, but, fortunately, on one occasion, running short of boiling oil, he substituted a mild and emollient application. He was in great fear all night lest he should have done wrong in adopting his treatment, but was greatly relieved next morning on finding his patients comparatively comfortable, while those whose wounds had been treated in the usual way were writhing in torment. Such was the casual origin of one of Paris' greatest improvements in the treatment of gunshot wounds, and he proceeded to adopt the emollient treatment in all future cases. Another still more important improvement was his employment of the ligature in tying arteries to stop hemorrhage, instead of the actual cautionary. Parry, however, met with the usual fate of innovators and reformers. His practice was denounced by his surgical brethren as dangerous, unprofessional, and empirical, 
and the older surgeons banded themselves together to resist its adoption. They reproached him for his want of education, more especially for his ignorance of Latin and Greek, and they assailed him with quotations from ancient writers, which he was unable either to verify or refute. But the best answer to his assailants was the success of his practice. The wounded soldiers called out everywhere for parry. He was always at their service. He tended them carefully and affectionately, and he usually took leave of them with the words, I have dressed you, may God cure you. After three years' active service as army surgeon, Parry returned to Paris with such a reputation that he was at once appointed surgeon in ordinary to the king. When Metz was besieged by the Spanish army, under Charles V, the garrison suffered heavy loss, and the number of wounded was very great. The surgeons were few and incompetent, and probably slew more by their bad treatment than the Spaniards did by the sword. The Duke of Guise, who commanded the garrison, wrote to the king imploring him to send Paris to his help. The courageous surgeon at once set out, and after braving many dangers, to use his own words, Dies pondo estangre humis en pies, he succeeded in passing the enemy's lines and entered Metz in safety. The duke, the generals, and the captains gave him an affectionate welcome, while the soldiers, when they heard of his arrival, cried, We no longer fear of dying of our wounds. Our friend is among us. In the following year, Pari was in like manner with the besieged in the town of Hesdin, which shortly fell before the Duke of Savoy, and he was taken prisoner. But having succeeded in curing one of the enemy's chief officers of a serious wound, he was discharged without ransom and returned in safety to Paris. The rest of his life was occupied in study, in self-improvement, in piety, and in good deeds. Urged by some of the most learned among his contemporaries, he placed on record the results of his surgical experience in 28 books, which were published by him at different times. His writings are valuable and remarkable chiefly on account of the great number of facts and cases containing them, and the care with which he avoids giving any directions, resting merely upon theory unsupported by observation. Parry continued, though a protestant, to hold the office of surgeon in ordinary to the king, and during the massacre of St. Bartholomew, he owed his life to the personal friendship of Charles Nye, whom he had on one occasion saved from the dangerous effects of a wound inflicted by a clumsy surgeon in performing the operation of venesection. Brantome, in his memoirs, thus speaks of the king's rescue of Paris on the night of St. Bartholomew. He sent to fetch him, and to remain during the night in his chamber and wardrobe room, commanding him not to steer, and saying that it was not reasonable that a man who had preserved the lives of so many people should himself be massacred. Thus, Paris escaped the horrors of that fearful night, which he survived for many years and was permitted to die in peace, full of age and honors. Harvey was as indefatigable a laborer as any we have named, 
he spent not less than eight long years of investigation and research before he published his views of the circulation of the blood he repeated and verified his experiments again and again probably anticipating the opposition he would have to encounter from the profession on making known his discovery the truck in which he at length announced his views was a most modest one but simple perspicuous and conclusive it was nevertheless received with ridicule as the utterance of a crack-brained impostor for some time he did not make a single convert and gained nothing but contumely and abuse he had called and questioned the revered authority of the ancients and it was even averred that his views were calculated to subvert the authority of the scriptures and undermine the very foundations of morality and religion his little practice fell away and he was left almost without a friend this lasted for some years until the great truth held fast by harvey amidst all his adversity and which had dropped into many thoughtful minds gradually ripened by further observation and after a period of about twenty-five years it became generally recognized as unestablished scientific truth the difficulties encountered by dr jenner in promulgating and establishing his discovery of vaccination as a preventative of smallpox were even greater than those of harvey many before him had witnessed the cowpox and had heard of the report current among the milkmaids in gloucestershire that whoever had taken that disease was secure against smallpox it was trifling vulgar rumour supposed to have no significance whatever and no one had thought it worthy of investigation until it was accidentally brought under the notice of jenner he was a youth pursuing his studies at sudbury when his attention was arrested by the casual observation made by a country girl who came to his master's shop for advice the smallpox was mentioned when the girl said i can take that disease for i have had cowpox the observation immediately riveted jenner's attention and he forthwith set about inquiring and making observations on the subject his professional friends to whom he mentioned his views as to their prophylactic virtues of cowpox laughed at him and even threatened to expel him from their society if he persisted in harassing them with the subject in london he was so fortunate as to study under john hunter to whom he communicated his views the advice of the great anatomist was thoroughly characteristic don't think but try be patient be accurate jenner's courage was supported by the advice which conveyed to him the true art of philosophical investigation he went back to the country to practice his profession and make observations and experiments which he continued to pursue for a period of twenty years his faith in his discovery was so implicit that he vaccinated his own son on three several occasions at length he published his views in a quarto of about seventy pages in which he gave the details of twenty-three cases of successful vaccination of individuals 
to whom it was found afterwards impossible to communicate the smallpox either by contagion or inoculation. It was in 1798 that this treatise was published, though he had been working out his ideas since the year 1775, when they had begun to assume a definite form. How was the discovery received? First with indifference, then with active hostility. Jenner proceeded to London to exhibit to the profession the process of vaccination and its results. But not a single medical man could be induced to make trial of it, and after fruitlessly waiting for nearly three months, he returned to his native village. He was even caricatured in abuse for his attempt to bestialize his species by the introduction into their systems of disease matter from the cow's udder. Vaccination was announced from the pulpit as diabolical. It was a word that vaccinated children became ox-faced, that abscesses broke out to indicate sprouting horns, and that the countenance was gradually transmuted into the visage of a cow, the voice into the bellowing of bulls. Vaccination, however, was a truth, and notwithstanding the violence of the opposition, belief in it spread slowly. In one village where a gentleman tried to introduce the practice, the first persons who permitted themselves to be vaccinated were absolutely pelted and driven into their houses if they appeared out of doors. Two ladies of title, Lady Ducey and the Countess of Berkeley, to their honor be it remembered, had the courage to vaccinate their children, and the prejudice of the day were at once broken through. The medical profession gradually came around, and there were several who even sought to rob Dr. Jenner of the merit of the discovery, when its importance came to be recognized. Jenner's cause at last triumphed, and he was publicly honored and rewarded. In his prosperity, he was as modest as he had been in his obscurity. He was invited to settle in London and told that he might command a practice of 10,000 won a year. But his answer was, No, in the morning of my days I have sought the sequestered and lowly parts of life, the valley, and not the mountain. And now, in the evening of my days, it is not meet for me to hold myself up as an object for fortune and for fame. During Jenner's own lifetime, the practice of vaccination became adopted all over the civilized world, and when he died, his title as a benefactor of his kind was recognized far and wide. Cuvier has said, if vaccine were the only discovery of the epoch, it would serve to render it illustrious forever, yet it knocked twenty times in vain at the doors of the academies. Not less patient, resolute, and persevering was Sir Charles Bell in the prosecution of his discoveries relating to the nervous system. Previous to his time, the most confused notions prevailed as to the functions of the nerves, and this branch of study was little more advanced than it had been in the times of Democritus and Axagoras, 3,000 years before. Sir Charles Bell in the valuable series of papers the publication of which 
was commenced in 1821, took an entirely original view of the subject, based upon a long series of careful, accurate, and oft-repeated experiments, elaborately tracing the development of the nervous system up from the lowest order of animated being to man, the lord of the animal kingdom. He displayed it, to use his own words, as plainly as if it were written in our mother tongue. His discovery consisted in the fact that the spinal nerves are double in their function and arise by double roots from the spinal marrow, volition being conveyed by that part of the nerves springing from the one root and sensation by the other. The subject occupied the mind of Sir Charles Bell for a period of 40 years, when, and in 1840, he laid his last paper before the Royal Society. As in the cases of Harvey and Jenner, when he had lived down the ridicule and opposition with which his views were first received, and the truth came to be recognized, numerous claims for priority in making the discovery were set up at home and abroad. Like them, too, he lost practice by the publication of his papers, and he left it on record that, after every step in his discovery, he was obliged to work harder than ever to preserve his reputation as a practitioner. The great merits of Sir Charles Bell were, however, at length fully recognized, and Cuvier himself went on his deathbed, finding his face distorted and drawn to one side, pointed out the symptom to his attendants as a proof of the correctness of Sir Charles Bell's theory. An equally devoted pursuer of the same branch of science was the late Dr. Marshall Hall, whose name posterity will rank with those of Harvey, Hunter, Jenner, and Bell. During the whole course of his long and useful life, he was a most careful and minute observer, and no fact, however apparently insignificant, escaped his attention. His important discovery of the diastaltic nervous system, by which his name will long be known among scientific men, originated in an exceedingly simple circumstance when investigating the pneumonic circulation in the triton. The decapitated object lay upon the table, and on separating the tail and accidentally pricking the external integument, he observed that it moved with energy and became contorted into various forms. He had not touched a muscle or a muscular nerve. What then was the nature of these movements? The same phenomena had probably been often observed before, but Dr. Hall, was the first to apply himself perseveringly to the investigation of their causes, and he exclaimed on the occasion, I will never rest satisfied until I have found all this out, and made it clear. His attention to the subject was almost incessant, and it is estimated that in the course of his life, he devoted not less than 25,000 hours to its experimental and chemical investigation. He was at the same time carrying on an extensive private practice and officiating as lecturer at St. Thomas Hospital and other medical schools. 
it will scarcely be credited that the paper in which he embodied his discovery was rejected by the royal society and was only accepted after the lapse of seventeen years when the truth of his views had become acknowledged by scientific men both at home and abroad End of section twelve recording by wilma magistino